If the events of Judges chapter 16 are your favourite part of Samson's story and you thought that's what we'd be studying this morning, well, my apologies because I'm going to leave you in suspense for another two weeks. Next week, of course, is Easter Sunday, so we'll be taking a break from this Judges series and uh, we'll pick up this famous account of Samson and Delilah and the Philistines are coming, God willing, in two weeks' time on the 11th of April. This morning I want to encourage you to have your Bible open again at chapters 14 and 15 of Judges, uh, which we looked at last week. As I said earlier, there, there are several really pertinent lessons that I think it would, it would be remiss of us to not go back and consider this morning. Uh, for the astute ones amongst you, you may have noticed, for example, that last Sunday I didn't say anything at all really about the final three verses of chapter 15. And I want to begin by focusing our attention on another detail which I didn't really develop last Sunday in any meaningful way, but it is worthy of mention and it has very real relevance and application for Christians today. Samson's mum and dad at the beginning of chapter 14 are just astonished that Samson will consider taking a Philistine woman to be his wife. And it, and it raises the topic of uh, choosing your spouse. And so that's our, our first point this morning. Choosing your spouse. As Samson's parents remonstrate with him about his choice of young lady. There's a particular phrase in the things that they're saying in verse 3 that kind of is the key to the whole thing and lies at the heart of all of their concerns. They, they say to him that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. That's what lies at the heart of the issue. If you read Exodus chapter 34, from verse 10 of that chapter, you'll find there that God is speaking to Israel through his prophet Moses. And God reiterates again his covenant that he has established with Israel. He's in covenant relationship with them. He speaks of that time when they will take possession of the promised land of Canaan, where of course all of these events are taking place during the time of the judges. And back in Exodus, he talks of the need that they will have to destroy all the pagan shrines and altars and the places of idolatrous worship. And listen to what is said in verses 14 to 16 of Exodus 34. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. God is in covenant with the people of Israel and they are to be actively in covenant with him. It's to be an exclusive relationship. And of course, 
marriage mirrors that side of God's covenant in that regard. Marriage is to be the exclusive relationship of one man with one woman. Now, in order to protect Israel spiritually, God instructs them to avoid the danger of ever being led astray by marrying into pagan families who are already there in the land of Canaan, families who worship false gods and idols. God does not have an issue with interracial marriage, as we call it, although I do just need to pause for a moment and make a comment about that phrase, interracial. There actually is no such thing as interracial marriage because there is only one race of people on the earth. God made man, mankind, humankind, the human race, and he made us all in his own image. All of us are descendants, first of all from Adam and Eve, and subsequently from the three sons of Noah and their wives. There are not many races of people in the world. That's a wrong way to think. There are many nations. There are many colours of skin. There are many languages and many cultures. I always find it fascinating. There's two uh, American black actors in particular who often speak out very eloquently on the subject of supposed racism. Uh, those two actors are Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington. You'll often hear both of them saying something along these lines. Many things which are classed as racism have nothing to do with race or skin colour. These are differences in culture. It seems to me that they are two quite wise men in the things that they say on that topic. Of course, often there are many languages and cultures within a single nation. Look around the UK. But there is only one race of people. So I use the phrase interracial marriage only because it's a recognised colloquialism, even though actually, as far as the Bible is concerned, it's impossible. The issue that God has with Israel is not that they mustn't marry people of other nations or cultures. That actually is not the issue. The issue is that they don't marry people who worship false gods and idols. That's the thing. Because they will make your sons play the harlot with their gods. That's what's at stake. That's what God is concerned about. Now, the wife of Moses was Zipporah, whose father was a Midianite priest. The wife of Boaz was Ruth, who came from Moab. But both of those women loved and served the Lord God of Israel. It's interfaith marriage, if you want a, a phrase to use. That's what God was concerned about. 
And of course, we're seeing all the time, aren't we, in our studies in Judges and so many other parts of the Old Testament, we're seeing how Israel have struggled with the issue of idolatry and just how wise and correct God was in giving them that warning, which of course they have ignored and which Samson is ignoring now. And surely he's aware of it. Surely he is. But he's doing it anyway. And I want you to note what it is that we can learn from this. Now, this principle applies to all of us all of the time, but in its immediate application, it's for anyone who's wondering about trying to find someone who they might spend the rest of their life with, like Samson was that day. We see Samson primarily controlled simply by sensual desire and at the same time ignoring the word of God. He sees this Philistine girl and his own desire for her sweeps him off his own feet and he hasn't even spoken to her yet. He saw her. That's all it took. This almost inexplicable tide of desire towards her and for her, it just comes rushing over him, possibly out of nowhere. It happens. Now, in one sense, you could argue that there's nothing wrong with this. It's perfectly natural. Well, up to a point, that's true. But just as King David discovered on the roof of his house one evening, what you choose to do next, because it, it always is something that you choose to do, what you choose to do next will live with you for good or for bad for the rest of your life. What David got wrong, what Samson got wrong, was that they allowed this desire for this woman to be their most dominant desire. And they allowed it to govern all of their subsequent thoughts and actions. Their desire for a woman trumped every other desire, including any desire to do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. She is right in my eyes, was the only thing Samson could think of. That's all that mattered to him. New younger ones in particular. You need to decide before that ever happens what you are going to do when it happens. You need to decide exactly what is the place that God and his word have in your life. If that is undecided within you, then you leave yourself open to the possibility of making a shipwreck of your faith, whatever faith you have at the time. Those of you who are parents, those of you who are members of the church, what is it that will keep and guard our children as they make their way through this most ungodly world? What is it that you need to pray for them? It is this. 
that their greatest ever desire will be to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. To love Christ and because of the depth of their love for Christ to keep his commandments. When they are confronted by very natural desires, their greater desire will keep them. The one who is their greater desire will keep them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14, Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Now there are many circumstances in life to which those verses may be applied. Marriage is definitely one of them. Listen to some of the words that Paul uses there. Fellowship, communion, accord, agreement. Now, of course, clearly in those, in those verses, he's talking primarily about a believer with an unbeliever. But think about those words. Fellowship, communion, accord, agreement. They are very apt words to use regarding marriage, aren't they? When it comes to deciding the one whom you will marry, I'm going to suggest to you that you need to consider far more than simply whether or not that other person is a Christian. Is there real fellowship and communion spiritually between the two of you? Is there doctrinal accord and agreement between you? I would go as far as this. Could both of you take out a document such as the London Baptist Confession of Faith? A few other good confessions are available. Could you take that as a summary of all that you believe and know that you are in agreement? Now, I suspect there might be a few who hear me say that and you immediately think, I'm just taking things too far. But listen, they are the kinds of things that we need to know about if someone wants to join us in the membership of the church. And, and why? Well, because that will have a real bearing upon the ongoing spiritual good and the spiritual stability of the church. Why on earth would you not want that in your home for the next 40, 50, 60 years? Why would that not be important if you're a Christian? Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 10. I plead with you, brethren. That's a strong phrase. I plead with you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
That's really quite specific, isn't it? Are you seriously going to suggest to me that this does not apply to or, or is not needful in a Christian home and in Christian marriage? If you get married knowing that the one who is to be your spouse is not in agreement with you on certain issues of doctrine, it's almost certain that at some point you will find yourself in a battle of wills over who is going to compromise on this, whatever this is. There might be several things that are this. And probably one of you will be left feeling resentful, frustrated, because you know that's not how it ought to be. It could prove to be one of the most distressing and unsettling crisis of conscience that you'll ever have. It could even decide whether or not you're able to continue serving in your church whether you'll even remain in that particular church. Believe me, it happens. You should do all that you can to avoid finding yourself in that situation in the future. You can spare yourself from that by what you will resolve to do today. Our all-wise God, our loving Heavenly Father, places these things in the scriptures for you so that you may benefit from his love and wisdom and of his care towards you. The second lesson that we learn in these passages from Samson is making a distinction regarding the work of the Holy Spirit who gives both gifts to the Lord's people and produces spiritual fruit within them. He gives gifts, he produces spiritual fruit. The story of Samson reminds us that it's necessary to consider these two things in the life of every Christian, that God by his spirit gives gifts and grants enabling to us individually, but Separate from that, the fruit of his spirit is to be seen in all of us consistently. There are things that God enables us to do, but there is also the kind of person that God is changing us to be. Now, it's human nature to draw, to be drawn by those visible and external gifts and abilities and aptitudes that people have and to notice those kinds of things first and foremost. If you can recall some of Paul's letters that we've studied in recent years, you'll remember that one of the things that was causing mayhem in the early church was people's attraction to preachers who really were quite something to behold in the pulpit. The problem was that as they did so, all other discernment 
when it came to watch what these men were actually teaching, all other discernment got thrown out of the window. People were in awe of their gifts and their abilities, how they looked and how they sounded, especially when compared to the likes of Paul, who was a rather pitiful sight and something of an also-ran when it comes to bearing on the public stage. Some believers looked down their noses at Paul. He really didn't fit the bill at all. Who wants a man who looks and sounds like that in the pulpit when we can have this? What impressive feats of strength Samson is able to produce. But what of his spiritual character and nature? Not quite the same story, is it? Impressive gifting does not automatically mean that everything is well spiritually. In recent years, there have been several men who have been greatly acclaimed around the world for their substantial abilities on a public platform. But their secret life turned out to be a very different matter. And when that became public knowledge, well, when these things became public knowledge, we're, we're given this stark reminder that the fruit and the graces within the believer are far more important than anything external no matter how impressive the external may be. Tim Keller makes an interesting observation about Samson. He said this, we must avoid lone ranger Christianity. Intimate fellowship is the best way to ensure the integrity of our inner and outer lives. Samson is notable for his aloneness not only does he not take any advice, but he never works with others, never builds teams. He's a one-man wrecking crew. That's a prescription for focusing on outward impressiveness while suffering from internal disintegration. Interesting observation. Keller also offers this thought with which I'd wholeheartedly agree that a person's prayer life rather than their activity is the best indicator of spiritual health. I wonder how it is for all of us. We can never know a person's private prayer life, but we can get an indication of it when you hear them pray. When, when did we last hear that person pray? When did you last hear them raise their voice in prayer at the church prayer meeting. Just the fact that they pray at the prayer meeting can be such an encouragement. When was the last time you even saw them at the church prayer meeting? And remember, the fact that God in his infinite wisdom and grace 
still uses Samson nonetheless. That doesn't mean that Samson's failings are of no consequence, nor does it mean that we do not take, need to take seriously the disciplines of discipleship, because, well, God will use me anyway. Well, we need to be really careful. We need to look to the Lord for his enabling, thank him for the gifts that he bestows upon the members of his church, but remember that the real evidence of spiritual maturity is not what you can do for him, but what he is producing inside you. The production of lasting spiritual fruit as you grow in the graces and likeness of Christ. And then thirdly, from those two chapters, we look at those final verses of chapter 15 that I didn't even really mention last Sunday. And what we see there is God's gracious supply. He's a difficult man to work out at times, is Samson, isn't he? It's really difficult to know for certain what is his attitude of heart as he cries out to God in verse 18. Is he angry and just being belligerent with God? You could read it that way. Is he employing sarcasm or irony at the thought of having survived this threat to his life that these thousand Philistine men had posed only for him now to die of thirst? Is this just a cry of weary anguish and hopelessness? Is it actually a genuine acknowledgement of what God has done for him and a declaration that he knows that God surely will not now leave him to die of thirst or to be taken captive by the Philistines? Hebrews chapter 11, after all, does assure us of his noteworthy faith in the Lord. Or, or actually... Maybe Samson is a, little bit, is a little bit of all those things. I think perhaps many of us are a little bit of all of that. Perhaps it actually turns out to be helpful for us to have these kinds of question marks against Samson because it surely is the case that, that we can see ourselves in Samson in many ways. No matter how it is, we may actually like to think, is he this, is he that? In all of that, we can see ourselves there. He's a far from perfect man, but he is God's man. And God hears him. And just as we've read earlier of God not being able to bear the misery of Israel, even though they were still in their sins, here we see God moving in compassion on Solomon's behalf, supplying him with an abundant supply of water and reviving him. And it was far more than a mere physical revival, although it certainly was that. But Samson's spirit is revived, we read in verse 19. God moves in, in wonderful grace towards his servant. As I pondered that during the week, I was reminded of the subject that Keith addressed us over last Sunday afternoon. 
eating so that you never again hunger, drinking so that you never again suffer thirst, food and drink indeed in Christ, living water. God longs that we would always remain close to him and know his daily supply continually. What did we sing earlier? In every condition, in sickness, in health, in poverty's veil, or abounding in wealth, at home, abroad, on the land, on the sea, as thy days may demand, shall thy strength ever be. God in his grace will be our daily supply, daily supply. Most of us know, like our ever-changing moods, life is very often not a smooth path that we're walking. But God, God specializes in rescuing us and restoring us when it seems all hope is gone. Maybe when you feel like Samson felt as he cried out to the Lord, in his need. It was in our completely lost and helpless state that God moved in grace, in great abundance, in supplying all that we need for salvation. He did so in sending Christ into the world while we were still sinners. We were not pleading with God to send us a saviour. Far from it. But God sent his son anyway. Just as Israel had not cried out to the Lord, yet God was preparing Samson anyway, allowing for his mum and dad to have a child after so many years of childlessness. And so too God has demonstrated his great love towards us in taking it upon himself to send Christ into the world even while we were resenting him and rejecting him and disobeying him and blaspheming his name. In his grace, Christ came and suffered and bled and died for our sins. Even while we had no thought or care for God, he had every thought and care for us. He drew us to himself. He made us to be new, born again, repentant creatures believing in Christ. He caused us to see our need of Jesus and to cry out to him for mercy. And just as the Lord split open that rock, for Samson, that he might drink and be satisfied. So God has opened heaven's door in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might drink of that living water and be satisfied, and that we might live and never die. We can't be sure of the state of Samson's heart when he cried out to the Lord. Maybe you're quite confused right now about the state of your own heart 
What you can be certain of is the constancy of God's heart towards those who will humble themselves before him and cry out to him for mercy and grace in their need. So why don't you if you never have done so before? Why don't you if it's been a long time since last you did? The abundance of God's gracious supply will continue with you still. Fear not, God is with you. Be not dismayed. He, he is your God and will still give you aid. He'll strengthen you, help you, cause you to stand upheld by his righteous, all-powerful hand. When through the deep waters he sends you to go, the rivers of woe will not you overflow, for he will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you even your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, his grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, his only design is your dross to consume and your gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus shall lean for repose, he will not, he will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavour to shake, he'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let us pray. Our God, our gracious Father, we thank you that you have shown us the extent of your grace, the abundance of your mercy in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you that as we humble ourselves before you, as we cry out to you for the mercy that we need, for the grace that we're in need of, that you hear us and you answer us. We thank you that you are a faithful God. We pray, Lord, that we might truly know what it is to have our every need supplied by you, to humbly relinquish ourselves into your eternal care, to know you as our Father, to have Christ as our Saviour, and to have you leading us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Help us, O Lord, to know afresh the wonders of your grace towards us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.